0: I invite you to take God's Word and find the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2, typically we're working through the book of Ephesians. It's going to be our normal practice. I'm going to divert from that for a couple of weeks. Acts, chapter 2, this morning. We finished Ephesians 1. Looking forward to the rest of that book. We're going to take a a break for a few weeks from it. This morning, Acts, chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 23, Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 23, as we're seeking and desiring to begin home fellowships in the next couple of weeks, wanted to take time to preach from the scripture about the importance of fellowship, so that's the focus this morning. And I uh, don't know of a better place to go than the founding of the church. One of the things you'll notice as you study your New Testament is there is a progression in the church. Um, the church essentially evolves throughout time in the scripture. From the beginning in Acts chapter 2 until essentially if you read 2 Timothy, which is written about the ordering of the church and written to a, a pastor, you see that there's, there's development that takes place. But chapter 2 of Acts, and and essentially looking at some of the fundamental realities that brought the church together and how the church began, is always worthy of study, consideration, meditation. We want to see these things in our church, many of them, and in our Christian life. That's why we turn this morning to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. It's there the scripture says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. One of the things we've tried to do as a church to further encourage you in the faith is we started a podcast called Lucid Brevity. If you don't know what a podcast is or how to access it, you could talk to some people sitting around you. You talk to Michael or David. Uh, They would actually be better than me in helping you get that sign on your phone or on your computer. But but the idea is here's a a place where you can go and and listen to more teaching. It's just 15 minutes. It's what we strive for. Uh, Usually try to do one per week. Maybe while you're in the kitchen cooking. Or maybe while you're driving to work or just driving around, driving to the store. Take 15 minutes. Listen to it. Think about it. Consider it this last week we recorded two episodes with Jamie talking with her about her recent mission work in Southeast Asia and in talking about her mission work she used the analogy of the church holding the rope for her it's an analogy that goes back to the beginnings of what we call the modern missions movement and it goes back to William Carey. William Carey who who felt compelled to take the gospel to the nations, he read clearly in the Bible and saw the command of Jesus to take the gospel to the nations And William Carey was compelled to go to India, a place where millions of souls lived without any access to the gospel in his day, but William Carey knew that that was not going to be a task that he could or should undertake alone, so he reached out to a a friend of his, a pastor named Andrew Fuller and, and that's where this analogy comes from. And Kerry used the analogy of going to India would be like going into a dark pit. And he said to Andrew Fuller, the pastor, if you will hold the rope, I'll go down. I'll go down. Recognizing he needed his church to support him and he needed other churches that believed in the spread of the gospel to support his work that the idea is the church and these pastors back at home would hold the rope and he would go and proclaim and spread the gospel I I got a present for you it's out there on the round table some of you have already picked them up which is great this is a, a just a short introduction to Andrew Fuller you can actually download it for free if you want the whole thing but th- this chapter talks about Andrew Fuller and his relationship to William Carey and as William Carey understood that he wasn't supposed to do missions alone or on his own or individually. Paul the Apostle, you see, in his his model of missions is always connected to the church. It's connected with and to the people of God. This is why he keeps coming back to Antioch, to the church there. He gives reports to the church. He is supported by the church. He's encouraged by the church, and he encourages them. And it's not only true in missions work, but it's really true in all of the Christian life that living the Christian life, doing the work of God, is not something we do individually. It's not something we do on our own. Then in God's plan and God's purpose, Jesus didn't just die to create followers. Jesus died to create his church. And so it's within the context of the church, the people of God, the gathered people of God, being the hub of the, the activity for God's work in the world. And we've learned about that in Acts chapter 2 and at the heart of the founding of the church is the gospel I'm just the text I read I'm just gonna give you a, a bit of introduction before we get to the, the point I'm gonna try to make in Acts two forty two in just a moment but you see the church begins with the gospel the preaching of the Apostles characterized by the gospel Jesus being the center of it verse 23 this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus comes by the plan of God and he was crucified. He was put to death. He died. Verse 24. But God raised him up. There's the gospel in a nutshell. The, the good news about Jesus' death on the cross for sins and his resurrection. That if you'll study the book of Acts, you'll find that is the message consistently preached and proclaimed by the Apostles and by the church this is our defining message and this is the founding message of the church Jesus Christ the cornerstone verse 24 God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. now he's gonna go on and explain why it was impossible for death to hold Jesus and look at the reason verse 25 for David says concerning him it's because of what is is written in the scripture Death could not hold Jesus because God said it would not. And notice the language here. David says concerning him. David is writing in this case and in this section of the psalm about Jesus. And it promises that Jesus would not suffer corruption. He's not going to remain dead. He's going to be raised from the dead as again look at verse 32 of Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2 and verse 32 this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses bearing witness testimony that God raised Jesus up just like he said he would in accordance with his word go to chapter 37 I'm sorry verse 37 Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 this is the crowd's reaction Or at least part of the crowd's reaction. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Notice they're cut to the heart. They're convicted. Their heart is affected by what they've heard about Jesus' death and resurrection in accordance with the Scripture. What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter answers with the command, Repent. Peter charges them with the reality of their guilt in crucifying Jesus Christ. What shall we do? Repent, turn from your sin. There's always one of the calls to respond to the gospel is to turn from your sin. John the Baptist shows up preaching repentance. Jesus likewise preaches repentance. This is part of our message as Christians, to repent, to turn from your sin, which also implies faith. There's no repentance apart from faith. And without faith, one must believe that Jesus is who he says he is, in order to trust that God is calling you to repent and believe in Him and it's through Him that we receive the forgiveness of sins. Notice this is for, for all that God calls to Himself, which amazingly involves us believers in Christ. Verse 40. I love this little summary. This isn't all the sermon and all the words Peter proclaimed. Notice verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation that's the call be saved from this wicked this crooked generation you understand the world in which we live today is still crooked the call is to be saved from the evil and the crookedness and the consequences of it in this generation there's only one name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved and that's through Jesus Christ that's the call you should repent and turn from sin and be saved from this crooked generation. You don't want to live a crooked life in a crooked world. You face the eternal consequences of God. By the grace of God, he's given you opportunity, kindness, to hear the gospel, and you should today turn from your sins. You should today obey God and be baptized. Have you believed the gospel? Have you repented of your sins? Well, Peter also commands to be baptized. This is what followers of Jesus do in obedience to him look at the summary there in verse 41 so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls here's just the simple the simple foundation of the church we receive the gospel we receive the word of God we believe it and then baptized in, in a visible recognition of following Jesus and were added to the people of God to the church and then verse 42, where we're going to give our attention this morning, a summary about what this church did, what the church was devoted to. Acts 2 and 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What are they devoted to? They're devoted first and foundationally to the apostles' teaching. It's what the apostles taught that will set the standard for how they live. And how they understand the Christian life. This is why, at the heart of what we live and what we believe, is the apostles' teaching. And notice it's this very specific apostolic teaching contained in the scripture. And we need to be devoted to that. But again, for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus on their devotion to the fellowship. This characterizes the early church, this people of God, called by God repentant of their sins, baptized, added to the church, devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're also devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to the fellowship. What is that? What is that? Fellowship is engaging with other Christians in caring relationships because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. It's an engagement with others. It's an engagement with other believers based on our commitment to Jesus Christ or our commitment to the Apostles doctrine we're first and foremost believers because of Christ and we have now by God's design and Christ's intent relationships with other believers and the scripture gives much attention to what those relationships within the church should look like. Read your New Testament read the letters to the churches and and pay attention to how often The commands in those letters relate to how you interact with other Christians in the church. It's it's simply impossible to understand the New Testament apart from understanding your connection to and relationship with other Christians in the church. This is in the very fabric of the DNA of the Christian life. This is why any idea of the Christian life that isolates oneself or turns away from the gathered body of believers in the church is fundamentally defective and woefully lacking if there's a view of the Christian life that makes it incapable of obeying certain scriptures or some view of the church that makes it incapable of obeying certain scriptures then that view is defective let alone the example we have here at the very founding of the church Here's a couple of quotes from John MacArthur that I found helpful. Salvation then is the basis of fellowship. When you become a believer, you entered the fellowship. Now you're part of the fellowship. Again, just pointing out that salvation is the basis of it. That's what begins it. That's ultimately what it's based on. It's based on salvation through Christ. MacArthur also says this, fellowship is critical to the life of the church. Christianity is not a spectator event that happens on Sunday. It is a common shared life with other believers. And I think that's a misunderstanding we deal with in our day when people think about the church. They just think only in terms of the meeting together of the church. There's more to the Christian life than that. There is this devotion to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And again, this all seems in the New Testament to take place with this gathered group of believers identifiable from the world recognizable committed to one another within the context of the church let me just give you one verse that points out that and again to make the point that Jesus didn't die just for us to be followers of his Jesus died for the church he died to obtain the church acts 20 and 28 pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's a message to pastors, to care for the flock. And notice what he says about the church of God, which he, interestingly interestingly there, God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. Obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. He obtained the church. Any understanding of the Christian life apart or detached from the church is a misunderstanding. So, therefore, fellowship is at the core of how we relate and interrelate to one another. Now, thinking about fellowship, let me just take a minute to define what it's not. It's helpful to think about what something is by understanding what it's not. Fellowship is not merely social activity. Fellowship is not merely social activity. That would be how the word is often misused and the word is often used to label things as fellowship that truly are not like for instance in our Sunday school class this morning we're having a great conversation about I can't even remember what it wasn't fellowship it was good conversation about worldly things nothing necessarily sinful about that it's just not by definition what fellowship is. Fellowship is not merely social activity. I mean, for instance, Jesus attends many social events. Jesus attends a wedding. Jesus attends feasts. Uh, Jesus attends the synagogue. He attends lots of events and lots of places and times where there's social activity taking place. It is fundamentally different than what he experiences with Peter, James, and John. That would be more like in the do fellowship. It is deeper and it is based on the truth of God's word or you take Peter James and John these are men who had devoted their lives before they were following Jesus to fishing these are men who knew about fishing that was their profession but you don't find a lot of conversations in the New Testament especially after the coming of the Holy Spirit about fishing did they talk about it once in a while probably assumedly but the fishing they're talking about generally is the fishing of men that we read about in Scripture. Spiritual, biblical, godly realities. That's at the heart of our fellowship. Let me talk for just a minute then about the, pur- the purposes, the results, what, sanctific- what, what fellowship promotes. This, this idea of being engaged in relationships with other Christians within the church, what does that promote? Well, it promotes sanctification. If you want a broad banner over all of it, it promotes sanctification, the growing in the faith. We as believers, we want to grow, we want to mature. And this being with other Christians matures us. And all the the, the realities biblically that go in with that, like loving one another, forgiving one another, being patient with one another, all of these realities are sanctifying. It promotes sanctification. So when I was growing up, one of the the best parts for me about growing up in the mountains was camping was a regular part of my life. When we were able to drive, this is what my friends and I did every weekend just about in the summertime when we didn't have to work or go to school. Work and school get in the way of fun, don't they? Man. My job when we went camping was getting the firewood and building the fire. We all had different jobs. That was my job. And uh, because I loved the fire. I loved sitting in a campfire and just watching the the embers. And one of the things you'll notice about a campfire is you watch it and and, uh, essentially you get this awesome core of white hot coals. And every once in a while there's a pop and some of the coals will pop out of the fire. You watch that coal pop out and you look at it and what happens to it over time? It begins to dim. And it begins to radiate less heat. And I think that's one of the things that happens to Christians when they're separated or away from or detached from the fellowship. They dim in their brightness for Jesus Christ and His glory. Their heat for the glory of God cools. But what happens if you take that fire, that, that cold that's going out and you put it back in the middle of the white-hot embers. It is affected by them, isn't it? It now also again begins to radiate light and heat. It's a good analogy for for how the church operates in our life and how we need one another. And by God's design, he uses the one-another reality, the relationships in the church, to sanctify us. Some specifics about how and why we should be devoted to fellowship, first of all. Fellowship promotes living out God's Word. Again, you just think of a general banner, living the Christian life, Follow. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So we're talking about, I've I've believed the gospel, I'm I'm trusting Jesus to forgive me, I'm I'm now living the Christian life, I'm now following Jesus. Every, Every person who's a believer is a is then a follower. What does that look like? After faith, what does it look like to follow Jesus? I think Jesus describes it best as, those who hear my word and do it. That's what following Jesus looks like. It is a relationship, but this relationship is defined in a certain way. Blessed rather are those who hear my word and do it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the wise man is the the man who builds his house on the rock. He's the one like that, the person who hears my words and does them. The church fellowship helps us do that. You find this, again, it's not by mistake so much print in the Gospels is taken up with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has fellowship. He is building fellowship into their lives. Peter, James, and John being his closest. Then uh, radiating out into other circles, the, 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 the rest of the 12. And then Jesus is friends with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. What is he he doing when he's in their presence? He's teaching. He's laying out his word. I've just found, I I think it's true in the Christian life and in living for God, we just need to be reminded oftentimes of what we believe. Moses modeled this in Deuteronomy. Look in Deuteronomy how many times Moses says, remember. He's speaking to essentially God's people, remember. Or, or Peter in 2 Peter twice tells the Christians he's writing to, I'm doing this to, to stir you up by way of reminder. That Peter had already taught these things, they already knew these things, but we need to be reminded of them. Do you, do you not understand in your Christian life, or do you not feel, you just sometimes need to be reminded what you believe? That, that we can know something, but we need other people just to remind us of what we believe. My goodness, I, I haven't thought of the substitutionary atonement in a long time. But yeah, of course I believe that. <clears throat> or we need to be reminded of who we are. Do you find that to be the case as you're marinating in the world? And dealing with the world and faced with the world? Or most of you working in the world? Do you need to, do you need to be reminded by other Christians who you are? and how you've committed yourselves to live. It's other Christians that remind us of those things. Fellowship promotes this living out of God's Word together. Fellowship also promotes prayer. This is one thing you find Jesus and His disciples often engaging in prayer. Praying to God. You know most, most of the prayers in the New Testament are corporate. Beginning with the one that you're most familiar with, what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a corporate prayer, Our Father. Forgive us our trespasses. It's not an individual prayer. It's a prayer meant for the people of God to pray together. And then following that, look at Paul's prayers in the letters, like what we just studied in Ephesians 1. That's a prayer the church is supposed to engage in, not merely individualistic. Fellowship promotes prayer. This is one of the... One of the. One of the sad realities in Baptist life is the lack of attention to prayer, in general, that we have as a church. Uh, This is why we began, we have a a corporate prayer that I lead after the scripture reading. We want to be praying as a church for things that we're doing. We, we, We need more of that. Baptists, years ago, established what they called a prayer meeting. Not a bad idea. Christians coming together for the purpose of prayer. What happened to that? Now, there's nothing absolutely mandated in Scripture. My goodness, you've got to have a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. But it certainly is an example of mandated that the church prays together. That's why, obviously, when we meet together on Sunday mornings, we want to incorporate and have prayer. But what has happened to this tradition? I would say, probably a good tradition a sanctifying tradition, of Baptists praying together. It's almost non-existent. Or just another question, just something I've observed. There's a lot of Christians around here really zealous for church softball. Why doesn't that zeal carry over to prayer, something that's clearly biblical and required and definitive? Fellowship promotes prayer. We're not just hanging out talking about X, Y, or Z. We're gonna gonna use a divinely powerful means to ask God for help. There's things we wanna see take place in our church. We're We're gonna together over dinner, not just talk about football. We can do that a bit. But we're gonna pray together for God to be at work in our midst and around the world. My favorite quotes from Jonathan Edwards is, the most powerful thing you can do to affect world missions is pray. In fact, he says the most powerful thing you can do to affect the kingdom of God. And I think he's, my goodness, every Christian can and should do that. We want to see God at work? Pray. Pray together. Fellowship promotes that. Fellowship also promotes accountability. Something you see, again, woven into the DNA of the church that's oftentimes lacking or missing. Fellowship promotes accountability. Friends, you know, biblically, confession of sins to one another is part of the Christian life. What Christians do you have in your life that you can and do regularly confess your sins to? This is a sanctifying, a sanctifying activity. It humbles you. And again, if we really believe through prayer that God helps us, Another brother or sister praying for us to deal with our sin or to help us fight it or put it to death. It's a good thing to do. All of us struggle with sin. All of us face temptation. Hopefully, there's brothers and sisters in the fellowship that you can call upon to pray with you. It's not just individual. This kind of fellowship you see in the early church promotes what we see all through the Bible for the church and God's people and Christ's followers, accountability. The only two times recorded in the Gospels that Jesus uses the word church, at least in Matthew 18, in the context of accountability within the body. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to have accountability. You understand, being a Christian, part of being a Christian is admonishing one another, Colossians 3.16. Admonishing one another. It's... Yes, the preacher, part of his job is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort based on Scripture. You also, every Christian, every member also has a role in admonishing one another. And doesn't it just make sense? This is not all the admonition we need or should get. We need so-and-so Christian who knows us better than the pastor, who spends time with us to walk alongside us and say, that's not a wise path you're on. Look at what Jesus says. Look at what the scripture says. Look at what this proverb says. Don't go down that road. We need to admonish one another. Or encourage one another. You can't encourage someone apart from someone else. This is a big part of the Christian life. And this happens in fellowship. It's encouragement. The the word encouragement is the, the picture of picking up someone who has stumbled. That's the picture. Helping someone when they're down. This is why Jesus uses this word to describe the Spirit's work. He's a helper. And every Christian is supposed to be an encourager and a helper of other Christians. Now again, imagine a church like that. Where you have these committed relationships to such a degree that when one person falls, there's a whole host of people engaged in their life to help pick them up. That's the biblical ideal for the church that we should all strive for. Fellowship promotes that Fellowship gives you an outlet to build that in your life To be honest with other Christians about I'm struggling with this I've dealt with this. I've fallen here. My goodness you raise kids. You're gonna fall in a million ways, eh? Maybe another Christian can help you with that Fellowship promotes accountability I mean a lot of people when they go to the gym in my case if they go to the gym some of them go alone a lot of them use a workout what partner right pushing one another to get that weight up i mean just like a drill sergeant screaming in your ear to get that last rep in just it just helps <clears throat> it helps Or you think of some of the sports people play, like tennis. I mean, you can hit the ball against a wall for only so long, but when you play another real person, that's how you're going to up your game. Or golf. I saw a solitary golfer out there this morning, and I was thinking about this example. Usually, I don't know what you call them, flocks, people playing golf together. There's usually a group of them out there. Why? Well, because they're helping each other in their game. Or maybe in tennis or golf, there could be a conversation like, I see you playing here. Are you a member? (gasps) There's membership in a group that will help me get better at my craft. Imagine that, even in the world. Well, there's membership in the church, part of the body of Christ to help you live out the commands of Christ, to be faithful. Fellowship promotes accountability. Listen to what Jerry Bridges says about that, and don't go to sleep. Spiritual fellowship means we watch out for one another, feeling a mutual responsibility for each other's welfare. We help each other through encouragement and accountability. The church devoted itself to the fellowship. Just a few more. Actually, there's lots more. I'll just cover a few. Fellowship promotes love. We recognize the importance, the essential role of faith. Faith alone. (laughs) Yes. The essential place of hope. Trusting that there's this eternal inheritance awaiting those that are saved. crown of life laid up for you. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, Paul the Apostle, this great preacher, this great church planter, says, you know, it doesn't really matter if you understand all prophecies and don't have love. It doesn't matter what you're good at or what you have if you don't have love. Love is an essential component of the Christian life and an essential component of the church. And, and incidentally, study your scripture and see most of the places the scripture speaks about love, it's talking about love in the context of the church. It's not just some vague, vague idea that you individualistically live out on your street it is it is lived out on your street but most of the times the scripture refers to love it's talking about a specific defined group called the church first Corinthians 13 is the best example where love is the ultimate foil against the vision and love looks a certain way in the church and the world is very divided isn't it as we see in these political climates the world is divided regionally and ethnically and socially I mean, we're very different than people living in Saudi Arabia for a lot of reasons. The world is very divided. We all recognize that. And people would be able to say to me, well, the church is divided too. I mean, isn't that true of the church as well? And again, hasn't it become a lamentable norm in the church? that division is part of the life of the church. And it goes all the way back to the Acts 6, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. How can that kind of division that is a part of the sad reality of the church be prevented or overcome? Right? We, we lament division in the church. We understand the biblical standard, 1 Corinthians 1, is there be no division among you. That's God's will. No division among you. But yet, we've probably all seen it. It's almost like it's the norm. Well, how can you mitigate against that? How can you address that? The church devoted itself to fellowship. Life is very short, and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends. I have always thought it's a crime. So I'll ask you once again. We can work it out. The, The Beatles said that about the world. How much more true should that be about Christians? We have Christ in common. Well, how do we prevent it, struggle against it? Fellowship helps. So many divisions could, could be wonderfully helped by just a, a private conversation, could they not? How are you going to have that without fellowship? Fellowship also promotes outreach. How do you engage people in the body to invite your co-workers? Most people in this room spend most of their life with co-workers. You can invite them to fellowship. Well, again, what we're trying to do, beginning the first week of October, we're calling home fellowships. Again, based on the reality we see in scripture of this foundational reality of they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So every other Wednesday, we're gonna try to have fellowship together in the church. And one of the, one of the realities of, of our church is we live in geographically different areas. Uh, again, I praise God, we come together, I believe, for the right reasons. We want to hear the gospel. We want to hear the word. We want to grow in the word. We love these people. We're united together to, to, to grow in the word and take the word to all the nations. What, a, what, a, what a great reasons to gather together. But given that, in the providence of God, we live in different places. So we're going to have different regional places where we, every other week, meet together on Wednesday night. We're gonna start the first Wednesday in October, and then every other Wednesday from there. And if you have questions, we'll, we'll address those and show you where you can go and what group you can meet with based on where you live. What we're gonna be doing is we're gonna take a meal together. Again, we, we see this in the DNA of the early church. They broke bread. This is, there's, uh, God's people eat together. We got to eat, we got to go, why don't we eat together? Might promote loving each other. So we take a meal together. And then uh, in the context of those homes, I I know at least in in the group I'm going to, we're going to have, we're going to dismiss the kids, and then we're going to have just some adult discussion. So we're going to let the kids go and do kid stuff with a couple of adults that are going to themselves have fellowship while they watch over the children. And then then the adults are going to gather for prayer because we see the early church devoting themselves to the prayers. We're going to gather together for, for, for discussion. And the discussion is going to be focused and, and centered. Again, part of the, the thing about preaching is you're not discussing things with me that's not what preaching is but it would be helpful to be able to discuss with other Christians matters especially related to like the Sunday morning sermon so there will be directed discussion of some type related to the scripture or theology why would we do this because of again the sanctifying benefits to the fellowship because we see this example in the in the New Testament in the scripture and as leaders in the church, and as a church, we want to value what God wants us to value. Jesus sets an example of fellowship. The early church sets an example of fellowship. Paul the Apostle sets an example of fellowship. And we want to follow in their footsteps. Another benefit of this is to hope to, to try to, to have another way of bringing together the diversity we have in our church. We have a... a diverse age groups in our church, which, which uh, again, there's a lot of people that don't know each other. And we want to have more outlets by which and through which the younger can get to know the older. This is one of the great benefits I had growing up. that I, I'm still friends with some of the people I grew up with in church. Incidentally, my church experience growing up, my closest friends in church were in their 40s and 50s when I was a teenager. That incredibly shaped me, and was incredibly beneficial to me. I'm thankful for that. We want to do it because it'll help you, because it's the example of Scripture. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Jesus, our Lord, most of all, that he took on the form of a servant, a slave, and died, even death on a cross. And, Lord, therefore, you have highly exalted him. So, Lord, help us in our recognition of the glory of Jesus and what he's done to highly exalt him. I pray, God, we'd be stirred in our hearts to value what you would have us value. That of first importance would be the gospel, Jesus and his work. God, I pray that you would stir people's hearts to have a passion to take the gospel to the nations. God, I pray you would stir our hearts to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. That the faith is not a matter of what I think. It's a matter of what you say in your word. Thank you, God, for your word. Bound in words, unchanging and eternal. Just to look to your word for guidance and direction and wisdom. That we would hear what Jesus says and do it. We just pray your good and blessing would be upon our desire to be devoted to fellowship. That, Lord, it would strengthen us. God, we do need one another. And God, that you would use the members of the body. That the body would be building itself up in love. That every member would be engaged. Doing your work for your glory. Helping one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.